On this episode, we discuss local versus national shows, AV education, and AI. All that and more on EdTech. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. AV Nation is brought to you by Sure, because every voice matters. EdTech episode 106, Getting Schooled in AV. Hello, AV friends. Welcome to another episode of EdTech. We have a bit of a smaller panel than usual today. Unfortunately, our friends... Rob and Ernie are unable to join us. So we have Scott Tyner. Hi, Scott. Hey, Aaron. Nice to be here again. Yes. And we have a very special guest, Karen Ethier from Ethier. I'm so sorry. I got that one <laughs> from Roger Williams University. Welcome, Karen. Uh, thank you, Aaron. I really appreciate you inviting me to be on the show. Yes. So please start off by telling us a little bit about um, yourself and your role over there. Yeah, sure. So um, Karen Ethier, she or hers. I'm the Director of Support Services for IT at Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island. I also have a secondary role at the university, a sort of part-time job where um, I also serve as a search advocacy coordinator. So I train faculty and staff to serve as equity process advisors on search committees. So um, I do that as well. Um, I also do, um, I'm also on the board of ETC um, and I'm very excited that I am going to be the um, president elect of ETC um, beginning in July. So excellent. Fantastic. And congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. That because that's a uh, if I know ETC right, that's a three year commitment, right? There's the pre presidency, the presidency, and the post presidency. Yeah. So I've done two years on the board, and now I have committed to three more years. Yeah. So okay. it, you know, it's a lot of thinking. I also um, contacted like other past and present um, presidents of ETC to talk to them about what the experience was and to find out the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, but ultimately. You know, it's an organization I've been involved in since I was an entry-level tech um, and has been really valuable to me and my own professional development and growth. And so um, I'm really looking forward to the, you know, the chance to, to give back. Um, so, and ETC, you know, just had that name changing and a rebranding. So it's really, I think it's an exciting, critical time for the organization. So um, some really um, exciting challenges. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, we actually talked about that a uh, a little bit uh, a couple episodes ago and how has been the response so far to the rebrand the, the response has been incredible um you know from, from the beginning um the you know the vote was overwhelming i think there was a real recognition that you know ccmc stood for the consortium of college and university media centers um and i know i'm not the only one that when i mentioned ccmc to my cio his eyes would just kind of glaze over you know <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Like, what's a media center? That doesn't sound like anything we do, you know? Um, so I think it's it, it it really critically 
is letting people know sort of what the organization stands for, you know, the people it represents and sort of what, the, you know, the next chapter is. So, um, so I've heard a lot, a lot of good things. And we also um, are just seeing sort of an increase in interest in the organization I've had. Um, just from my own contacts, I think we've had four new, you know, members like this week just from people that I've talked to. So I think, I think the rebranding is really helping to kind of jumpstart um, all the great things that were already happening there already. Excellent. Well, all right. We will jump into the um, articles that we read for this uh, episode. The first one comes to us from AV Nation, and it's the um, Yamaha Unified Communications to Showcase at Exodus Almo E4 Experience. Um, so there's you know, a lot of regional shows that, um, you know, th they've kind of always existed, but it seems like there's more and more smaller things popping up. Uh, what, you know, what to, for you both, what is more appealing or are you more likely to attend a local show like E4 or a big national one like Infocom? Um, so I think there's definitely something to be said for big shows. I have to admit that in my 20 something years in the industry, I just went to Infocom for the first time last year. It was something I had sort of actively avoided because of its size, um, because that kind of didn't appeal to me. But I think that there's an advantage in terms of scale with the bigger shows. So both in terms of the number of vendors that you, know, you can interact with, but also just the scale of the technology that there's sort of the space um, to, you know, to highlight. So I think, I think there's really something to be said for that. And also, you know, networking on such a large, um, on such a large scale as well. But I think that the smaller shows can offer some really targeted, personalized um, interactions. You know, one of the things I found to be an advantage in sort of smaller events is the ability to really spend time with vendor manufacturers and bring them problems and have them really talk through solutions and, you know, and suggest like very targeted um, technologies and, you know, um, and plans. Um, so I also think that the small shows really offer that chance to build relationships um, between, you know, us and, and our our vendor manufacturers, um, just because it's just easier to kind of have a conversation um, in depth um, where when those booth interactions are so sort of impersonal and there's so much going on um, at, the, at the big shows. So um, I also, you know, speaking of ETC, we started to do um, some um, regional events. This is not really about trade shows, but about conferences. So we at Roger Williams, we just held the first ETC local or regional event and invited people sort of in Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, a little bit New York. Um, and some of the, well, all of the um, vendors who came to that really talked about how valuable those small events are to them um, and how they really made some good connections um, with folks in our area um, and some good leads. So I think um, these smaller things can be valuable both to us as customers, but also to the, the vendors as well. Karen hit, hit the nail on the, on the head there. Uh, it's you're in some ways you're comparing apples and oranges. So it, it's hard to say which one's uh, better. Um, 
I, I, my, my take always is the only thing I'll add is I think that if you are struggling to get professional development or travel funds, those smaller regional ones are less expensive to go to. And so you start there, you come back to your organization, you show it provides value and you kind of build to kind of the Infocom or, or the bigger shows. Um, and I think Infocom is changing. I, I think that that's for the better. The Infocom show is changing and I think it's for the better uh, because my first Infocom, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, walked around a show floor, like, what am I supposed to do here? Uh, nobody wanted to talk to the the single person from Small Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. Um, and so it was, it. the training and the professional development was was valuable, but walking that show floor was not particularly valuable, valuable at that point. I do think some of that's changing, but again, if there's money issues, certainly that smaller conference and even the the ones that Karen mentioned, the smaller conferences like ETC might put on, they do have vendors there. Even if it's a conference, they have vendors there. And like she she said, you you can get into these conversations with them that you're never going to get in at, at a bigger show when they're watching their watch because they've got half an hour and they've got to go take off because they've got another appointment. I think um, that's a really good point about the um, you know the the cost and the travel cost and. Um, I think the smaller shows also give opportunities to people in the industry or in our offices and our staff that wouldn't we wouldn't be able to get travel funds to go to Infocom. You know, CCS just had a, a showcase in, in New Hampshire with some vendors this past week, and we were able to send one of our techs because I can get mileage money, you know, but I can't, you know, this isn't someone that I would be able to send with airfare and, and accommodations to Infocom. So, so that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. And also, I think it could potentially be better timing-wise, too, because a lot of times if you're making the investment to send somebody to, say, Infocom, that's at least a three-day period of time where they're not going to be in the office. They're not going to be able to be useful. So at least if it's you know a local show, they potentially could be gone for a day, and then they're back in the office the next day. So from a, you know, a cost standpoint, a resource standpoint, like local is, is really nice and your return on investment is good. And I'm sure that the vendors would agree to that the return on investment for them has got to be pretty good because I'd imagine the cost overall of doing a small local show is significantly less than a large trade show. Yeah, I mean, I, did, I went to a, a, a conference two weeks ago, maybe last week, I can't remember at this point, and the vendors that we normally deal with are in the area already, right, our local vendors. So really, they're just going there, they're paying for a table and setting up a table. There's no added expense. It's not like they're flying 50 people to Vegas or Orlando. Um, so I, I agree, Aaron. I think that, that for them, it's, it's a, a much less cost, costly proposition. Well, I mean, it definitely sounds like there is value in both. Um, and I, you know, I definitely enjoy going to the large shows because um, it's almost like summer camp. Like you get to see all of your friends that live all over the place that you don't normally get to see in person. So that's kind of, um, I think it's always the networking and the personal side of it that is almost more of a draw than that gigantic anxiety inducing show floor is like, where do I start? 
I've been telling all my, um, you know, when I've been talking to vendors for the last month or two, I'm like, I'm going to get in touch with you right before Infocom and I'm going to book a booth tour because I'm not, I'm not wandering around this year again, like trying to like push my way into crowded booths and get someone, you know, to pay attention to me, as Scott said. So, um, you know, I know what my projects are. I know the technologies I need to, you know, research. So for me this year, I'm going to, you know, try to book as many um, booth tours as possible and just have a more targeted scheduled approach because I, I really do feel I just wandered around like a small child last year, mm-hmm. <laughs> confused and lost. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's those taking that approach is, is nice. Cause then, you know, you're going to hit those, those few, those things that you know, in, in advance you want to see. Um, but then sometimes you end up missing out on that, like, small thing that you may not have noticed but at the same time you'd probably end up hearing about it if it if there was something out there that you know was really knocking everybody's socks off you'll hear about it and then look it up and figure it out you know find out about more later all right well let's move on to the next article uh this one comes to us from av magazine UK's largest ARVR learning center to open at uni- at City University. What a cool and brilliant concept this uh, this was. Uh, but like, how how could we, you know, do this more at more schools with you know general uh, more maybe more generalized AV education in in schools? I so Aaron I. It's funny. I read this article. I, I think AR, X, XR, uh, VR, they, they, they've all got a place, right? But this article kind of made me giggle because it's the problem we have with it right now is that I don't actually know what they're doing. Like I, I read this article and I have no idea what this school is doing. Like, so I'm kind and, and that's the problem. Like people talk about it, but they, it's hard to, to talk about some concrete thing that you're doing. Um, so I, I think I think the school is immersing people in AR, VR, XR, and letting them use it and play with it to develop it. I don't know if that's really true. Um, and I think that, that that that's very interesting. I know that in some schools, probably even larger research universities, that's actually where I've seen most of the um, VR or XR being used is in the research areas. Uh, as, as as opposed to in the actual uh, teaching and learning area, the, the kind of the classroom space. How I in- interpreted it was essentially that they were creating a program to develop AR and VR, um, not necessarily for higher ed, but essentially a company partnering with the university to create a program for this and providing the, the tools and then after the fact potentially offering jobs to the graduates um and that seems like that could be something that a big integrator or a manufacturer could potentially do with an with a school um you know maybe some you know something on the sm- a smaller level or community college potentially you know, I could see like an AVI SPL coming in and partnering with somebody and being like, here's this, you know, help, you know, help equip 
and give them the tools and then in the end taking some of those graduates of that program and giving them some jobs or at least just building you know that av for you know workforce more i think um you know kind of comes back to that like sort of age-old question that comes up at my institution which is which comes first the tech or the pedagogy you know um should we be proactively bringing tech and then um sort of challenging the faculty to then create you know the the learning outcomes around that um or should our work be driven by um you know by the pedagogy by you know what the faculty are, are you know finding valuable to to be teaching to our students and that's been a source of tension the entire time i've been at, at my institution is sort of where we fall um in terms of those um in terms of that innovation you know um this makes me um think of i was at Arizona State University, I guess, two weeks ago with the ETC board, we did a great tour there and they were highlighting some technology that they have. And they had, um, we didn't see it, we saw um, some video of it. Um, Planar has installed um, an LED, like sort of immersive um, stage kind of thing. So, you know, with um, the walls and the floor or LED panels. And this is how like the Mandalorian was shot is that all the like scenes are happening on these LED walls and then um, the actors are like in this space and it looks like, you know, they're, they're um, in the environment, but they're not. And so I guess Planar has partnered and, um, and installed this and, and um, they showed, you know, them, them being used. Um, and I thought that was really cool because that's a real opportunity for Planar to, you know, um, see how their technology is, you know, used in, in these kind of academic spaces and then gave, you know, the students access um, to that. Um, this, this, I think this article also for me brought up what has been a conversation that's been coming up a lot lately um, when I'm talking to people around the country, which is about AV education in general. And and pathways, right? So if we interviewed, you know, 20 people in AV, all of us came up in probably very non-traditional, you know, there there isn't a pathway really into, into the audiovisual industry. And, you know, it's kind of currently based on like who gets mentored, you know, who gets, you know, who gets hired, who knows who, you know, and that's led to, um, we continue to see a real underrepresentation of women and racially minoritized people in our field. And I think part of why that continues is that, um, you know, we know there's a lot of bias in mentoring. We know that there's a lot of bias in hiring, um, you know, unconscious bias. So, you know, that serves to sort of perpetuate, you know, who, who is in the industry. And I think there's some interesting work being done. Um, George Chaco at Pace University, they're doing an AV um, program there. I think it might be a minor um, and they have their first cohort and I've heard some really great things about that. Um, Christopher Hope um, in Boston does um, an internship program um, and I think has some partnership with Avixa where they're training um, people to um, to get into the AV industry, you know. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, every single university, right, has some sort of AV department not an, any sort of education program that, you know, would prepare people to do that job. So, yeah, I've always 
struggle with that concept of AV education because I struggle with what is the AV industry? I mean, it, it's a sales industry. It's a technology industry. It's a electronics, elect, electric flow kind of industry. So I, I'm always kind of like, what, what would an AV curriculum look like in any time, type of a trade school or university or college? And um, so I, 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 it, it's interesting. I, that's the first I've heard of some, some of those places that are starting them. So I'll be curious to see how that turns out because I've, I've always kind of gone towards the, the side of um, we should be bringing people into the AV industry some, from some of the other fields, the computer science fields, um, the even an, an electrician, elect, electrician field in a, in a uh, community college or trade school. Um, so I'll be really interested to see how that turns out in those other places. I think the challenge that I think that's what we've all, you know, I've certainly been doing. I've been actually reaching out to computer science um, graduates of the University of Rhode Island, and I, I've hired three of them so far. Um, but, you know, that really puts the impetus on us to be doing training in-house, right? And so especially with turnover rates, what they are, I don't know if this is happening at other institutions, but with our turnover rates, you know, we're, there's a lot of um, impact on our current staff to be constantly training new people as they come in because they may have some competencies but don't necessarily have, you know, that full AV knowledge. You know, or we'll hire someone who has maybe like, you know, some video experience, but then they come in and they don't have some critical audio or control system experience that we need and we're sort of constantly, you know, training. Um, so it, it would be nice if there was even just an agreement about what, you know, someone in the AV industry needs to know and be able to do <laughs> to do the job on day one, you know. Actually, that, that uh, when you put it that way, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I think that that, so now I get, I understand the problem, right? I hire somebody, even if they're an electrician or they're, even if they're a programmer, computer science major, at, they, I, they still don't know what to do. And I'm sure I can send them for CTS, but when they're done their CTS, they're still not going to be ready to get into the field and do stuff. So where do I send somebody to train them or record? Yeah, that, that's a great point. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there, I guess the, the, you know, possibility of courses is kind of endless because there could be so many different facets that could be like, I, you know, your, your major is, overall like audiovisual but then you could major in sales or or minor in sales or be on the installer track with a minor in programming or so, like there were definitely there's definitely lots of i think opportunities there that you know that in a lot of it is stuff we just kind of pick up along the way. So like rack dressing 101, like just how mm. to put together a proper rack and labeling and all those things kind of could, you know, they're useful skills that a lot of us, I think we just sort of pick up along the way because there wasn't really a way to learn it. And you just, then you potentially pick up, bad habits too. So if there was a way to learn it, you know, in the, you know, the best ways possible, like, I think that would be so valuable to our industry and also have a dedicated stream in to 
into the field since, yeah, we kind of just, most of us stumble upon it. And I, uh, I am very similar to Karen in that I came to higher ed AV through higher ed AV. It was my, it was my work study job as a student. And so, um, I just never ended up leaving. And I think part of it, you know, it's, it's great sometimes when we can recruit from our own staff or student staff to become full-time staff members, but a lot of them came to school for completely unrelated things. And I, you know, I, I would imagine that parents probably aren't too happy when they're like, oh, you, we just paid for you to go to, to school. You graduate with this degree and now you're doing that? Oh, okay. That's glad our education dollars went uh, to the right place. But I, I, know. I know my <laughs> my family wasn't particularly pleased. Although I think in the <laughs> end they were like, yeah, you probably ended up better off because I finished with a degree in illustration. So sociology for me. So, <laughs> right. So it's yeah. like, mm, I probably ended up uh, on the better end of it being uh, employed full time with benefits and stuff, as opposed to, you know, trying to work my way through the art world as a freelancer. I struggle with what you were just talking about, because sometimes our staff will say like, oh, you know, um, this student worker would be so great. Like maybe we could, you know, hire them after they leave. And now that I'm like the age of our student workers' parents, you know, and see everything from a parent point of view, same thing. I'm like, oh, God. you know, like if, if, if my kid like went through like and paid all and I paid all that money, you're going to Roger Williams. And they're like, I'm going to keep my student job, <laughs> graduate, you know, um, but, you know, I don't, I don't regret it at all. I mean, I just found, you know, I found something that I just really loved to do. And I tried to leave. I got a master's in teaching and I tried, left for a little bit and was drawn right back in because it's just, you know, what I love, what I love to do. And I think a lot of us are in the field because of that, because we just got hooked and it didn't let us go. Absolutely. Okay. So we have one last article and this one, uh, it, comes to us from rave pubs at AI in higher ed. Scott, since you are the author, do you want to uh, tee us up for this one? Yeah, I have to reread it because I think chat, chat GPT wrote that for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually, I, I, we, we've chatted a little bit about this in the past. I, I, I think AI is just, um, and we've said this so many times in technology, it's the thing. I, I think AI is the thing. It, it is exciting and horrifying all at the same time. Um, but I, I, I think it's one of those places where you can just, you can imagine anything. And um, I think about, um, you know, I wrote about it in there about this idea of like these, this, not just a camera following you, but about the system learning from your behaviors and from your language what is going on in the room and reacting to that, right? So uh, a professor who walks towards the chalkboard, reaches down and picks up chalk and raises the arm to write on the board, the system knows that's what the professor is doing. So it zooms in on the board, right? There's nobody that has to manually do that. Uh, if, if it's a home theater, right, it learns the difference between you getting up to grab 
a soda out of the refrigerator and you getting up to head towards the door to leave to use the bathroom and reacts properly to those things without ever having programmed to do that, right? It's it's artificial intelligence with cameras and microphones and uh, and machine learning. And it's just, it is uh, mind blowing the, the stuff that, that could happen with that. I think, um, you know, when I read the article, I was so wowed um, by just you talking about AI with the Sony units, you know, the, the, the cameras that, you know, can auto track, pan, tilt and zoom, how they're basically using AI to do that by recognizing the speaker and, you know, making decisions of the movement on their own. I just hadn't thought of that as even being AI. And that was like really, you know, fascinating. And I think the possibilities that you're talking about, about these systems being intuitive on that level is like, amazing because if you think about like usability and accessibility you know how we struggle to get our faculty to use this technology um because they have to interact with it and figure that out you know and imagine if like they didn't have to you know but that also feels like super far away to me right now considering i'm not going to say the name of my smart speaker because then she's going to talk to me because she's right next to me but we call her lexi in our house you know our lexi is pretty stupid like <laughs> you know what I mean? she's not that smart so it's hard to you know kind of imagine a future where you know my ai is going to be able to intuit whether i'm getting a glass of water or, you know or going to or, or leaving the room but i think um that's that's really really exciting the possibilities are really exciting oh yeah absolutely like i love the idea that it, like in the future support could be a lot different of classrooms and stuff if the systems themselves were a bit more um not self-aware but like you know like it could self-report that there's a problem or it could you know yes there are ways to you know you'll have to you look at a dashboard and you could see something's offline but for the actual system itself to know that there's something wrong and to be able to let you know or even if a user in the room itself is having an issue it could make the switch for them or it could do things that it could tell like oh they're just hitting the wrong input or something like that to make those usability things so much easier without you know having to send a tech to help them or something like that'd be just amazing I, I, that's another i mean it's a that, what a, a brilliant way to use it right we years ago we when we started putting help buttons on our touch panels when somebody pressed a button that says audio is not working right we programmed it to say well hold on if audio is not working let me go make sure it's not on mute let, let me make go go sure let me make sure the audio input changed properly but that was all programming we did in right the ai nobody not say there's a problem right the ai can go wait a minute this computer is playing a video my microphones with auto echo cancellation aren't getting any audio coming out of the speakers there's a problem here and start to fix it right it uh I just a lot of times I, I don't often think I'm very creative. And a lot of times I'm kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't really know how you'd use that box. But for AI, I'm like, oh my, it's just, it, there's endless possibilities of how you could do it. And I think that if I can think of them, there's going to be some really smart, creative people who have already like blown by the stuff that I'm thinking about. Right. Yeah. I'm, th I'm thinking that like, 
this is probably not as far off in the future as we think, because it seems like all of this technology is just exponentially like increasing and, and becoming, you know, more and more powerful. And it seems like even in the last four months, like the, the amount that chat GBT has changed. Like I can only imagine that within the next year, how many things are going to be able to be automated or, you know, have that intelligence kind of built into it. So it's, um, it's exciting and scary, (laughs) Yeah, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. (laughs) Well, all right. Um, Karen, thank you for being on the show with us. You have been an amazing guest. How can people reach out to you if they want to? Well, again, thank you so much for inviting me, Erin. I was so um, pleased when you reached out and excited to join you. You know, I was listening to the show and it's a great show. I love I love the format that you have. And um, it was really exciting to be part of it. Um, you, can, you can reach me on LinkedIn, um, probably the easiest. Um, also, um, my email is k-e-t-h-i-e-r at rwu.edu. Um, so if you wanted to wanted to email me directly um and i will also i will be at infocom this year i'm presenting with Aaron actually on a panel with Aaron, so that's exciting um and so i'm looking for people to connect with and hang out with at infocom so people should reach out excellent and scott how about yourself uh well first i want to say it was great to to meet karen i think we just heard her phone bang because i just tried to connect on linkedin um so uh, it was it was great to meet you. It was, it was a great time. Uh, you can reach me on on Twitter at s tyner uh, on, on Rave Pubs and of course uh, here on uh, Ed EdTech uh, every month. Oh, and and LinkedIn as well. If I didn't say that, I can't remember. Oh yeah, of course. And as for myself, you can find me on Twitter at smirin underscore off underscore ice, and on LinkedIn. And I'm. Pretty much, uh, if you're a member of Hetma and on our community, I am always in there tinkering around. So, um, yeah. So, thank you all for another fantastic episode. And hopefully you'll join us again next time. 